welcome to another episode of the Emerging Excellent Podcast. I'm your host, Felicity Fury, and founder of We Aspire. I founded and led several multi-million dollar businesses and globally worked with over 20,000 emerging leaders, inspiring them about leadership and what could be possible. Today, I am joined by my fabulous co-host, Brett Bassett, CEO of QLeave, and also an inspirational role model to emerging leaders and CEOs alike. It's a pleasure, as always, to be hosting this podcast with you, Brett, and I know we're going to have a robust and impactful discussion today. Today on the podcast, we're asking the question, are your team ready? How do you know if your team has what it takes? And this is a question we hear a lot from organizations, particularly ones who are thinking about leadership programs, training and developing their staff. How do we know they're going to be ready to step into those leadership roles? Young people today, emerging leaders, really do want uh, or hungry for leadership positions. But how do we know they're going to be best prepared? We've interviewed several CEOs over the course of our, our time here at We Aspire, and one even said this is a question that keeps them up at night. Brett, you've led many teams, big and small. Is this a question that keeps you up at night as well, if your team are ready and capable? I think the answer is sometimes, and um, I'm a big believer that I try not to let anything keep me up at night because it means that I'm actually not getting stuff done during the day or I don't have a plan for the next day. Um, but the reason I say sometimes is it depends on the contextual circumstances. So I'm a big believer in evaluating team performance on an ongoing basis. So the way that I tend to think about whether or not a team has performed well or I've performed well as part of a team is based on what we've done, the end of a large project, if there's been a crisis at work or something. And so I think the way that I would deal with it is by saying, yes, it does keep me up at night sometimes, but not in a negative sense. It's more about the reflection piece of how has the team performed and just as importantly, which is one of the reasons we're doing these podcast series, is how as I have a as a leader contributed to the performance of the team because that in my instance is sometimes a positive and a negative response as to how I've, I've supported the team. That's really interesting. I feel like that speaks to how you relate to leadership or the context even that you might have around being a leader because I can hear you also talking about that responsibility piece. So it's almost, I think, a responsibility of a leader to be someone who has the team you know, feel empowered to go take action, to ask questions, and almost a responsibility to have that really fine balance between giving people enough space to grow but also having them feel like they can back themselves and take action as well. Is that part of your philosophy as well, Brett? Oh, look, absolutely, Felicity. I mean, I'm a big believer that, that, that if something goes really, really well, the team should get all the glory. I really, really believe that. And when it doesn't, it's on the leader of the team. It's that simple for me. I mean, I, you know, I've worked in very large organisations. I've worked in smaller organisations. I've worked in global organisations. And the one thing that has always been consistent to me is if something's going bad, it's my fault as the leader of the team. It's never the team's fault. And so I fundamentally operate that way, you know, every single day. And I think that if you have a team that's not performing well, you must start at the top of the team, which is how is the leader contributing either positively or negatively to the team's performance? Mm, it's a great perspective to take because you can go, you know, what's missing? What would make a difference here? Even if you feel like you're doing a great job, you're looking out there at the performance kind of like, 
a sports person, it's a lot easier, I think, often in sport, whether you're running a marathon or playing tennis, you get results. Where in business, there's no finish line. There's not really set goals. A lot of it is you're setting your own standards and it can be tricky, but that's great. I think that performance really gives you that feedback on how you're going as a leader. And I think if if you're looking at the sporting analogy, if a team's not performing well on the field, who is it that the board or the fans look to? They don't look to the captain on the field. They don't look to the team per se. They go straight to the coach. And it's the coach that gets punted. I mean, that happened just recently with Manchester United, I think it was. That's the clear example, right? Culture starts at the top. It pervades everything. If the culture at the top is rot, it will then pervade the team as well. So I really, really believe in that. Hmm. I think personally, on on a personal note, as someone who has been on the emerging leader side, I often feel it's a, it can be a worry. Are my team ready? And I kind of have a pull to wanting to control things and take things over, which I know, you know, intellectually, that's not the right thing to do. But that's often my strategy to kind of counteract, oh, they're not ready. I'll just step in and do things. It often seems like the easy solution. Have you had that experience as well, Brett, to want to kind of would say, I think we were talking about saving people last week on the podcast. Yeah, I think every leader has that desire, I guess, to make sure that their team doesn't fail because, you know, if we get back to the ego piece around leadership or ego in respect of everything we do, some people don't want the team to fail because they're concerned that it looks bad for them. Now, that might be true in a factual sense, right? But I also think that, and I, let me be really clear, I, I, I've let teams down. I've, I've been a leader that has failed, you know, as a leader of a team. There's absolutely no doubt about that. But I think the key thing is um, if leaders continue to go and rescue, then they're not growing their team. If leaders don't let people feel safe within, a, you know, from a failure perspective in a safe, respectful area, um, then the team won't grow. And I think once again, you know, there's this, often this conversation that people will have, well, who's the weakest link in the team? Sometimes it's the leader and the leader needs to be accountable for actually saying, you know what, I need to step away or bring somebody else in from a leadership perspective. So, so, so I do think that the, the rescuing piece is real, it's tangible, and more importantly than that, the way I look at it, is the rescue piece can actually stop growth within a team. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And he just reminded me of one of my very first leadership experiences when I started the not-for-profit Power of Engineering. And we had an amazing team. Everyone worked really hard. And I thought I kind of went the other extreme of giving people, you know, complete freedom to do whatever they wanted. I was sort of went, okay, here's what we're going to do. I don't know what I'm doing. I've never been a leader before. You kind of just go for it and create your own vision and, and make up your own thing. Because, you know, what would I know? And I wanted to give people that that real sense of freedom. What ended up happening was that people weren't clear on the vision. They worked really hard. They were all volunteers and they got burnt out. And we had every single volunteer in our team quit. And it was Mm. just me and my co-founder. And while on a performance level, we actually performed really well. Our clients were happy. School students got this great experience of what engineering is, that we had these crazy results around perception change in engineering. So on paper, we had the performance, but then everybody quit. So I really had to look at myself as a leader and go, what can I do here? Or what were some of those mistakes that I made? And one big lesson for me was that um, the team, the team were capable, but it was that balance of actually 
giving the vision and some boundaries and holding that space as well as giving them the freedom. And yeah, it was a pretty painful lesson to learn, uh, but I'm really glad that I had it early on. And and I think, you know, once again, I'll talk about the reflection piece. Every week I spend half an hour on a Friday afternoon before I go home or when I stop working at home, I'm literally asking myself the question, how have I performed? Have we achieved everything that we wanted to? And how has the team performed? And I write some little notes every single week. I do that on a Friday. It takes no longer than about 30 minutes. And I think that that reflection and that writing down actually really does move it from just being a thought to a, a considered response to how the team is performing. Mm, that's great. It's really powerful to really spend the time taking those lessons it's so easy just to roll on to the next week and not have that moment to pause but such an investment in yourself as a leader and also your team I'd love to ask you Brett what do you think the leader could contribute to the downfall of the team obviously it's important in in the success of the team but what do you see a leader could do potentially to have it go the opposite way as well I think and I'll talk about some personal experience here I think not encouraging a safe space for conflict. Um, I th- and let me explain that, right? So um, I think it's Len Coney that talks in, in one of his books about if you want to get the best out of a high-performing team, then what you've got to do is you've got to create a space where people sitting around the table actually want to have real conversations. And that might be having a different approach to something, looking at things in a different way, challenging somebody else in a respectful way. And I'm a big believer that that my role as a leader is to actually encourage that, right? But I think it's fair to say that I've been negatively impacting teams previously where there hasn't been that safe environment. And And the best example I can give is it's only safe when the conflict is not about the ego, when it's about an issue or something, if that makes sense. So I'm a big believer that you have to lead not by ego, but what's best for the team or the organisation. So I think that's an example where te- where a leader can actually let a team down. I spoke before about not actually growing and empowering a team. If you rescue consistently, the team is not going to grow. Now, of course, I've done that previously. I really have, and I've done that previously. Um, but I think, you know, there's some examples from real life. I mean, I'll give you one. It's a, it's a really strange one, but just this week, um, I work from home on Monday, and I'm so much more productive when I'm at home. There's no one around me. There's no one for me to talk to apart from on Teams or on the phone. And so I got a lot of work done, and I'm talking detailed work, and I don't like detailed work. But then I came into the office on Tuesday and Wednesday, and I've, I'm a big believer as a leader, and you've got to walk, you've got to talk, you've got to see people. You know, I walk into meetings that are going on, and what's going on here, and just ask and want to be involved, right? And somebody actually said to me, and they didn't mean it disrespectfully at all, and I didn't take it disrespectfully. They said, do you know that we as a group are more productive when you're not here? <laughs> and I, I sort of thought, oh, gee, does that mean that I'm negatively contributing here? And I then thought about it and I went back and I thought, well, no, what that person's saying is they're not getting interrupted. So I then needed to think, okay, how do I make sure that I'm still leading the organisation by being seen, by being engaged, but actually not stopping people from actually doing the stuff that's important to them. So, so there are some real-life examples of how, you know, I think a leader can actually lead to a, a, a detriment in a team. What about you? Oh, so good. There's um, there's so much to unpack in that. And 
I think your point around doing what's best for the organization is really powerful and role modeling that within a team. And some of the most difficult decisions I've had to make for example, with power of engineering, I remember we had to fire a volunteer and Mm. it was really tricky. I actually worked with them professionally in my day job at the engineering consultancy and he was a really good friend. And he's, you know, we're still good friends today, which I think showed how the conversation didn't go as terribly as it was, I had thought in my head. And I said to him, you know, here's your performance. Here's what's been happening. Let's look at what's best for the organization. What do you think is best? And he actually said, look, I think it's better that I step away and we give this opportunity to somebody else. And I was relieved and it went a lot better than, than I thought it would. And it made it not about a personal thing, not like, oh, you're not good at X or you're not good at Y or, you know, like there was some performance, that was the whole reason why we needed someone else in the role because of performance. But it was great to have it be objective and about the organisation. And similarly, I remember working on the Westgate Tunnel Project in Melbourne. I was working for Transurban at the time. I was a consultant, seconded there. And part of my role was as a design manager. So looking at what the government needed, what the community needed, the um, contractor and the designer. And there were some decisions where I felt like personally I wouldn't agree with but I had to represent the organisation and role model that for people who I was working with and all the key stakeholders. And I think that can be tricky sometimes and why it's probably really important for leaders to be values aligned with companies because that's where, you know, you're going to do your best work as a leader when you've got that match. Um, But it was tricky making some of those decisions, but I had to be in that mindset. It's not about my opinion or how I I feel about something. It's what's doing, it's doing what's best for the organisation. And then I, could back that decision and explain that to others as well and lead the conversation to get the dozens of stakeholders on board with an idea and get them to agree to something once I share that perspective. And I think that cultural piece is so important, right, the values alignment. So, um, you know, over my career, I've I've moved my philosophy from um, behaviour drives culture to culture drives behaviour. I really believe that now. I, I didn't believe it initially. I thought that if you wanted an organisation to be high performing, you yourself had to demonstrate that you're high performing. But I think I've now changed my mindset to be that the culture you set at the top will actually drive the behaviours in an organisation. And I think one, while we're talking about this detriment piece, one of these things around culture is a really important one. If you are the leader of a team, if somebody does something that doesn't align to the values of the team and the organisation, you have to pull them up on it. Now, of course, you should do that in private as much as possible. You praise in public and you chastise in private, right? But I think if there, if you as a leader are walking past the behaviour that you expect, sorry, that you don't expect, you are accepting that bad behaviour, if that makes sense. Some leaders often do that. And that then is it's pervasive in a team, it's pervasive in an organisation, it's, perv- it's pervasive from a cultural perspective. And so I think a detrimental leader can actually allow this festering uh, non-delivery, this festering bad behaviour to really cause fractions in a team. And I think I they're agree. really hard conversations to have as well, right? Yes. It's all, it's all, it's not just the affirmative action you take, it's the actions that you don't take 
and then that sets the standard. And it just reminded me back to classic safety culture when I was working for a construction company while I was at uni, you know, the standard you walk past is a standard you accept when it comes to safety. And I think it also points to leadership culture, how people behave, and it permeates the whole organisation, particularly when you're in that group setting and the leader is continually stepping over issues with their team or with people and it's it can even be the smallest thing that really that breaks that trust and then if you don't have that trust in the team it could be something so small but it's a standard that's been set it can drive that whole culture i agree and i think the other thing i'll say before we move on to the next question is um sometimes leaders and i was responsible for this myself early on in my leadership career sometimes the leaders are more worried about what the team think about them rather than what's the right decision for the team or the organisation. You know, you've heard me say before, I've heard this phrase recently, it's called leadership, not likemeship. I think, you know, if we think about people who might be watching the podcast, people who are new in emerging leadership perspective, it's a really tough thing, particularly if you're a member of a team, to go from being a peer to being a leader. Because, the, you know, often, and I've done this myself, you want to please the team. A leader's role is not to please the team. A leader's role is to lead the team to make the organisation better. And I think, you know, um, that's a really important thing that can be detrimental to a, to a team if the leader is worried about people liking them rather than people leading, than leading the function. It's so tricky. It's so, you know, you can feel that you just want to belong and that sense of belonging is such a natural urge, I think, for us as humans of fitting in with the tribe, not rocking the boat. But I think that is the truest sense of leadership when you are stepping out and making those tough calls. And that's what I think makes the best leaders, you know, those top in those top positions amazing um, because they're having to make those really tough calls and they might not even want to do it, but that's what's required required of them in being a leader in that situation. And totally as we discussed in last week's podcast, that's why leadership can be really lonely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's not Especially skills. And it's tricky, right? When you have been that peer and that friend, you've got to change your relationship almost to yourself to get into that mindset to be what's required for people and for leaders. So thinking about change tax a bit, thinking about people in our teams who might talk about their capabilities and, you know, do a big talk around here's my here's how awesome I am, here's why I'm the best for the role, but there's a big difference between talking and walking. So, Brett, how would you assess if people are ready to deliver, ready to be put in those leadership roles, and how can you as a leader trust that your team has what it takes? Let's start with the end first. Um, I don't think you can trust what the team takes until you give them the opportunity to succeed or fail, right? You know, I think that's a really important thing. Sometimes as a leader, you just need to let go and say, team, this is what we need to do over to you. Getting back to your point around, you know, how do you how do you know? Some people will put their hand up and say, I want to have a go at this. I want to test the boundaries. I want to test myself. There's that type of person. So what you've got to do is you've got to give that opportunity to that person. The other thing as well is I, I think that there are a number of people that I like to call grey people. When I was in the police, you, in my view, I always wanted to be the grey person, not somebody that stood out, not somebody that didn't stand out, but somebody that just got the job done. We need to look for those diamonds in the rough in a team because they won't put their hand up. 
they won't want to rock the boat. But what they will do is they will be the consistent deliverer of things and they are the ones that will go the extra yard a lot of the time compared to some of the other people. So that's a way that you can assess. Is there somebody in your team that's doing the stuff, the really hard grunt stuff that needs to be done that nobody else wants to do and they're never asking about it, right? So you've got the person at the front end who's really keen. You've got the person who might be the great person. I think the best way to, to determine who in your team wants to um, be a leader is to ask people. Performance development conversations are so fundament fundamentally important in this, right? You know, I ask my team all the time, tell me what's next for you. If you could create the ideal job, what would it be and why? I have that conversation every single time. Um, and so I, I think getting back to the question about how do we know if somebody's ready? Ask them if they're ready. Give them an opportunity. Give them a safe space to fail and then support them if they do, but then congratulate them as well. And I'm also a little bit of a believer, getting back to this conflict piece, if you've got two people who are both really chomping at the bit, give them an opportunity separately, but also to work together. Because this is when hubris often comes in from a team perspective, right? You'll see people who will want to put themselves first as opposed to putting the team first. And you will be able to identify those people on an ongoing basis in real time. So there's some examples that I use on a regular basis. What about you, Felicity? Yeah, you reminded me of uh, Jim Collins's book, where uh, Entrepreneurship 2.0, which is a fantastic book and would highly recommend it for anyone who's wanting to develop themselves in leadership or, you know, wherever you're at in your leadership journey, there's absolute gold in that book. And one of the surprising things he talked about was that people often think that to be a leader, you need to be charismatic. And he found in his research that charismatic people are uh, weren't, weren't the it wasn't the top characteristic of a leader so I think it's great that you're reaching out to people saying do you want to take on a leadership role and I think we also need to break down some of those stereotypes that we have around what it means to be a good leader or what good leadership looks like I'm an extrovert and Thankfully, uh, most of our world is designed for people like me who are extroverted. But there are people who have incredible other skills, who are introverted, who um, are you know, different from a sort of traditional leader, but actually would be perfect in these different roles. So I think to add to what you're saying, Brett, we also need to look at what are the, you know, how can we pull people up who might not think that they are leaders as well because certainly for me I didn't think that I was leadership material um, for certain reasons particularly in engineering because like you Brett I'm not a detail person and I am not a technical person which you know for engineering that's not the norm and so I did always feel a bit different and think maybe I couldn't be in those leadership roles because I haven't proven my time technically as an engineer which was my stereotype of what I thought leaders should be like. I think as you were talking, I was, you know, I was sort of thinking about something I know that, that I, I learned from Simon Sinek. So I, I really like Sinek because he's a really simple, and I say this respectfully, he's not simple. Well, his message is simple, right? Another good way I think that you can find who the leaders are in an organisation is to, in effect, ask a couple of key questions. And Sinek talks about high performance versus trust, Right. And he gave, gives examples of, of the US Navy SEALs. And he says, you know, what the Navy SEALs basically ask are two key questions. Do I trust somebody with my, with my life in respect of high performance? And do I trust them with my wallet? It's the performance 
the delivery versus the behaviour piece, right? We've all been in teams and seen teams who where you have really high individual performers who, do, who deliver really well, but they don't operate as part of a team because they don't like other people, they put their ego first, etc. But then I've been in teams and I've led teams where you've got really sound performers but who from a, um, a trust perspective are all about the team, are all about doing the right thing, the supporting of the right, you know, of the behaviours of the team, et cetera. So I think if you, if you think about those two uh, considerations, performance versus trust, I think that's another way that you can actually help identify who are going to be the great performers in a team because somebody mm. might be a great performer, but if they're horrible to work with, they're not going to be a good member of a team. So true, and I, it almost comes down to that, you know, would you prefer someone who's got the right skills or the right attitude? And attitude, for me, I'd go attitude, attitude every day of the week. And, yeah, the skills you can, I think a lot of them, most of them you can train and learn, which leads me to my next question, actually, which is when it comes to training people up as leaders or, you know, you've identified this person would be great in this in this leadership opportunity, what kind of things do you think are important to put them in that role? Or maybe it's a bit of a training on the job. What's your perspective on providing those the right skills for people? And this will be my last question, warning to the audience before I open the floor up to Q&A. So go for it, Brett. Look, I'm a big believer in emerging leaders programs, right? I mean, I've had the pleasure of working with some really high-functioning teams um, and some really high-functioning uh, people and culture and talent managers. I say that most directly. Um, I think that if you want to encourage leadership in an organisation, you have to have a defined program through an emerging leaders program, an employee value proposition that actually encourages, that nurtures, that gives opportunities. Because simply just saying to somebody, put your hand up, is different to actually demonstrating investment in leadership in an organisation. You know, literally saying, we will take you out of what you do on a daily basis and give you an opportunity to do something that you haven't done before. I think you've got to align that up to a performance development program. I really believe that. Um, and I think also that a leader should always be focused on saying to a team, what is going to challenge you? And if it's not here in the organisation that we're in, how can I help you to get to the challenge that you want? A lot of leaders, unfortunately, in my experience, think that their role is to keep somebody in an organisation. My view is a little bit different. My view is about saying our job is to make your own job redundant by making sure that somebody else can do it and also making sure that people have the best opportunity to be the best that their best selves but doesn't necessarily mean in an organisation. So there are some examples of what I've seen and what I like to do. What about from your perspective, Felicity? You've worked in a range of different organisations. What have you seen or what do you do? Yeah, Great question. I, I've, yeah, been done consulting, construction, worked in government, university, and I wish I was given more of the opportunity to um, to actually practice those skills. And often I've found I do it kind of on my own um, and talk about, uh, so no worries, Kim, that you need to jump off. Thanks for being here. And you can listen to the recording later and we'll um, pop that on um, on all of the socials and you can check it out. Thanks so much for coming along. So I wish I'd given had the opportunity to practice more. And it sounds like a lot of what you do, Brett, is to go, um, you know, here's the opportunity, step into it. I've got your back if things don't go quite right and let's discuss and debrief along the way. And 
for me, I often have to do a lot of that with peers or set up conversations where I can practice. And I've literally called like my best girlfriend, who's a safe space at, before a speech. Whitney is my go-to. Uh, and I'll go, I just need to practice this with you over the phone or I'm about to have a difficult conversation. Can you just listen, like pr pretend you're this person for a bit and role model? And it's amazing because you think something's going to sound one way in your head, you talk about it with that person or it doesn't come out quite right and so then I'm better prepared for those conversations. So anything that's scenario-based, which is a lot of what we look at at We Aspire, is those role plays and you have that opportunity to practice in a safe space before you actually get on the court. And it's much like uh, you know, football players. If you look at a soccer player, they would spend, actually I have no idea how much time they'd spend, but you know, probably 40 hours a week training for the game. And the game is a lot less than 40 hours per week. It's a very small percentage of that time. But as leaders, we often don't have that chance to practice and try things out. We're kind of doing it on the go and, and in the job, which one can be scary, particularly I think when we have cultures in our organisations, rightly so, in engineering around safety and yeah. not take, you know, being really safe and, and risk adverse, which is great for, for our profession, but not so great when you're having to step into those leadership roles. And I think that hindsight or reflection piece is really important, right? I mean, so, so you, you know, I sit down with my team after every board meeting we have, and say, right, how did we go? What could we, what, what could we do better? I sit down with, um, you know, in previous roles, I've sat down with different leaders who are going in to talk to boards and say, right, tell me what can I do to support you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I agree with the scenario-based piece, but I also think sometimes a lot of leaders forget the hindsight piece. What has gone well? What have we learned? What can we do better next time? That has to be part of everything you do. Yeah, I actually, there's a quote and I'm I'm going to get it not quite right, but it's you you actually learn on reflection. You learn when you're taking that time out to, to pause and reflect. And thankfully, actually, a lot of um, I've seen in programs now, they actually do take that time to stop and reflect. I literally never did any of that in my engineering degree. It's only been after once I've had coaches um, and and actually had people suggest reflecting to me that I've even thought to do it and it's absolutely part of my practice I try and journal every single morning to just get it out of my brain and just take those lessons I think it's really really powerful so I might open the floor to questions now we've had a couple of people jump off no worries thanks for letting us know um for the people that are here on the call if you've got any questions pop them in the chat or if you would like to unmute yourself, feel free to do that and ask your question. Give people a moment just to type away or unmute yourself. Well, while we're letting some people do that, let me ask mm. you a question, Felicity. Okay, um, go for it. What's the highest performing team you've ever seen? Highest performing team I've ever seen? Hmm. Well, it makes me think what defines a high performing team. Is it based on success and results and are they still a high-performing team if they don't get the results they intended to accomplish? So that would be very my analytical engineering brain is is processing this question. I feel a lot of it is what what makes it the best, what makes it high-performing. Probably would go to say sport and the Olympics, and we had the privilege of having Dean Boxall speak um, at, at breakfast, which you were at, Brett, and. 
he really talked about there's one thing to go to the Olympics and then there's another thing to win a gold medal at the Olympics. And I was really surprised because he's a swimming coach and he spoke about how he leverages team even though it's an individual sport, which I found really, really fascinating and interesting. So when it comes to those things, but then that's a really easy measure of performance and success because it's literally the best in the world. And it's a really difficult thing to define when you're looking at projects or business. What does that performance mean? I like to think of high performance as it's a team that continually can deliver success. So that requires a continuous improvement process, you could say, that reflection that you talked about, Brett. So there's a few that I've been in professionally. I really enjoyed my time at Brisbane City Council when I worked in the major infrastructure projects office. And it wasn't like your regular council department. They'd actually pulled together the best people from the organisation and hired new people and said, let's pause, let's rethink. How can we set up a project management office? How could we change our procurement processes to make things go more quickly? And it was that innovative thinking where, we did tenders that could be put into different parts. So a contractor could win one part and then if they did did it successfully, they could win the next part or we had the option to go back out to market again. So those have been some really, that was a really exciting team because we were looking at things with a fresh perspective. Everything was on the table. The leadership really gave us permission to do that. I was 23 at the time and was managing $45 million of projects, which was super cool to be thrown in the deep end. And I'm really grateful that I had that opportunity to do that. So, yeah, there's it's a great question, Brett. Have you been part of a high-performing team or what, what comes to mind for you? I won't talk about the teams I've been a part of. I'll talk about what I've seen. Um, I've seen some really high-performing boards. And, and the reason I... I asked the question, so I wanted to get to that point. Um, there, there's often a, a conversation that we have at team level, you know, who should lead a team? The way that I, the reason I talk about boards is at the board table, there is this belief. Every person is equal. There's no doubt about that. And then the chairperson of the board, there's a saying in boardroom land, the chairperson is the first among equals. I've seen some really great high-performing boards where that is so very, very, very true, um, where you have a leader who is all about allowing everybody the opportunity to input, to have a different uh, way of asking something, to have a different uh, frame through which they're looking at something. So in my experience, I've seen some really, really high-performing boards, once again because the first amongst equal, the leader is making sure that what they're doing is supporting the board rather than actually driving the board. And we've got a question. Hooray, our we first question. we got a question. question, yeah, from, oh, I'm going to say Sanaz. Apologies if I've pronounced that incorrectly. So our question is, I was wondering, what is your advice for culturally and linguistically diverse people who strive to move up to leadership positions but face lots of difficulty in terms of being in a minority and being kept encouraged to keep improving themselves? I'm hoping to move up being in my current role for a few years now but still facing systemic difficulties. At the same time, I don't want to play the victim or blame the system. What could be the best ways to move up in your career in this scenario and have the support of senior leaders to do so? Awesome question, 
Brett, I'm going to throw you in the deep end. Yeah. So um, I'm pretty blunt at times. And so the first thing I'd say is if you are not getting support from a diversity and inclusion perspective, ask yourself a really simple question. Is this the organisation I want to work for? I think that has to be a really important values alignment piece. That would be the first thing. The second thing I would say is the volunteering world has is a fantastic area, not for profit, where you can go and offer your services. Um, now, you don't get paid for it in some instances, right? But you actually have an opportunity to go and get the experience that you might be looking for and then take that experience and bring it back into the organisation. The third thing I would say is um, as part of your ongoing performance development conversations, make sure that you say to your supervisor, your manager, your leader, this is what I want. Tell me and write down for me why I'm not getting it and then ask one really simple question. Throw it back on your leader. How are you going to help me get there? And then getting back to the cultural piece, if, they, if, if they're not going to help you, Ask yourself a question, do I want to continue to work for this leader? So, so that's there are a couple of real-life examples. A little bit blunt, but I think, you know, it comes to a cultural alignment piece from a diversity and inclusion point. Felicity, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, I wish I had you 10 years ago, Brett, 15 years ago, because I wanted to go into leadership roles and just had no idea kind of the pathway or how to get there. And there was often, you know, you do your graduate program and then there's this gap of, okay, how do I go from graduate to team leader? And there's not often a clear pathway and there's lots of different ways to get there as well. So it can be tricky because you've got to really drive that yourself. And early in my career, I was really sitting back and waiting for to be tapped on the shoulder or I'd go to these events where you'd hear people speak and they go, oh, I don't know, I just got offered this leadership position. And you go, oh, okay, is it there's some mystical thing where someone's going to offer me this position? And one thing I unsuccessfully did early in my career was I would often tell my boss what I thought he wanted to hear about what I wanted to do with my career. So I'd go, oh, yes, please, sir, I want to be a structural engineer my whole life because I thought that would help me keep my job. Of course, a terrible idea. I did not want to be a structural engineer. Remember, not great with detail. And I should have said, I want to go be in a leadership position or I'd love to be a project manager or whatever it was, what I actually wanted. But I was so scared that they would think my ideas were silly. I'd get laughed at. I, they'd go, Or they'd say to me, you're just not leadership material. And it would really crush this aspiration that I had. So I think that's a really great point around saying, what you know here's what I want to do and here's um, you know what are some ways that that I could get there in this organization I also agree with you Brett around if you're not getting those opportunities or you've you know you've tried those different things and there's that misalignment on values or you're seeing you know the same kind of person uh, promoted that's not you um, or doesn't fit into you know yeah I guess the cultural background that you have go, is this really the right organization for me? And I think I waste a lot of time early in my career staying in the wrong organization. And I was really scared. I was scared. You know, you think, Oh, I've got to have a job. I've got to um, have this position on my CV for my future career. And I think a lot of 
a lot of the time I'd kind of wait around in roles because I was trying to make it fit when actually there wasn't that values alignment and I wish someone had told me that earlier. So, yeah, great points, Brett. I also think, you know, in, in last week's podcast we talked about, you know, the, the, the employer-employee relationship and how it's changed, you know. We, we talk about a skills shortage we talk about, you know, a candidate shortage. It's a great time, and I'm not suggesting that you should do this, but it's a great time for you to think about asking yourself, is there an organisation out there that I really want to work for? And how can I make sure that I go and take every single step? I think we must remember, each one of us, it's our career. We've got to stand up and we've got to ask the hard questions, not only of self, but of those that we're working with. And I think you know, I'll give you a real-life example. I remember when I was at, at ASIC um, many years ago, I was in a, a senior role um, and I had a wonderful, wonderful leader. He was just brilliant, this, this person. Um, and in one of my performance conversations, he said to me, what do you want to do when you leave? And I said, oh, I think I want to be a CEO one day. And he said, how are you going to get there? I said, I've got no idea. I'd already started to do an MBA. We talked about once again last week that sometimes MBAs aren't all they are, all they're meant to be from a theoretical versus a practical experience. And he said to me, how can I help you? And out of nowhere, I just said, give me the most important strategic project that's coming up because I needed to work on strategy. He said, done. So a couple of weeks later, I remember I got a phone call. I was over at the, um, uh, near the, um, uh, the, the, the Botanical Gardens over at Mount Cuthra in Brisbane. And I got a phone call. I was just about to do a speech. He said, I want to let you know, mate, this is the project. You're going to be leading it. This is the team we've got around you. You're going to kill it. And as it turns out, I was lucky enough to be able to do really well with the right team around me. But I asked. The hard part is always saying, this is what I want. How can you help me? But given the comments I made before about the skill shortage, the employer-employee relationship being more different than it's ever been before, fantastic time to ask. And if you're getting a leader who's pushing back or... You could, you know, my worst fear is someone's going to laugh at me and go, that's a terrible idea, Felicity. Don't be ridiculous. They're probably not the leader you want to hang out with if they're going to be laughing at your goals. And, yeah, I've said to some amazing mentors, I'll, I actually said to one, I'll have your job one day. And he said, I believe you. I, I would love to work for you. And I thought, wow, cool. That's awesome. And it opened up a whole new conversation, which was fantastic. And, I think your point as well, but I want to pick up on the volunteering thing too because that's a great way to build that track record and particularly for me, I feel like I often look quite young and so, you know, thought early in my career people aren't going to give me these leadership opportunities. Often I think in the field of engineering and a lot of other fields there's a really set traditional career path where you go, yep, you're a graduate for three years, then you're an engineer for five and then you become a senior engineer for X amount of years before you get into this role. But I think the way that the world is changing, it's not based on those technical capabilities. For sure, if you are wanting to be a technical expert in the rail industry absolutely that makes sense and that's important but the world we're in today is complex and complicated so we need people who can think and it's more around how you think rather than that knowledge piece look at chat gpt or or you just google most of the uh, most things these days so it's more around how do you think about that data synthesize it bring teams of experts together so someone who's got those people skills and is really advanced in that area can be a great great asset to a team of technical people. So volunteering is a great way to go. Here I've got some runs on the board and 
for me, I end up starting a not-for-profit, don't you know, advocate for everyone doing that. You don't need to go to that level. It's I went to go volunteer on an Engineers Australia committee. This is the results I achieved. And actually building a case study for yourself around it proves that you've got the runs on the board. And one of the most surprising pieces of feedback I've received from mentors has been, you had an idea and then you brought it into reality. And whether that's your own organization or it's within another one, that's a really powerful message because so many CEOs and leaders I speak to say, people just come to me with problems. Can they come to me with solutions and then action them? I don't know if you've had that, Brett. I see you're nodding along. So uh, I'm guessing that you have, but you're demonstrating that leadership where you put your hand up, you've taken action. And I think that goes, you know, really shows that you're serious about leadership absolutely i I just i I just can't can't overstate that if you don't ask you may not get and that can be hard and it can be really really confronting right but if you ask and getting back to exactly what you said felicity about laughing if somebody laughs at you or they say no you're crap you know what i'd do the first instance tell me why i'm crap and if they don't tell you they're not the right leader for you so ask the question, think about where you want to go and then have a go. And we've got somebody with their hand up. Awesome. Go for it. Jump in. I'm not sure what your name is, so please share your name as well. Sarah. Sorry. I thought I'd put it on there, but I obviously haven't. Um, We've actually spoken years before Felicity, um, Sarah Dean. We had a um, conversation years back when I was still graduating from engineering. Yes, of course. I definitely remember speaking to you again. So good. I love it that you're here. Thanks for coming along. No problem. The question is around this same piece that we're discussing at the moment around um, technical skills and movement in your career. And I just wonder, I'm in a civil engineering field at the moment and I'm still interested in leadership roles and I still think that might be where my career might go. But I wonder around that um, requirement to have those base technical skills, it seems to be a very common theme. And there seems to be this idea that you need to have the the basis of your technical skills. A lot of leaders around me have them. But is that really necessarily the right way or the only way to go about it? I feel I have a very strong opinion on this question because (laughs) I personally, it's a belief. It's one of those like core beliefs that I have. And I've had people challenge me. I've even posted about this on LinkedIn and had people comment that they disagree, which I think is really interesting. And I I believe that. The technical you can get you can be a leader you can step up into these roles without the technical skills and there's a great example actually is an awesome TED talk by a guy um, I've just totally blanked on his name it'll come to me um, and he talks about this like, he actually had been running hotel chains for a number of years and he had lots of experience in the hotel industry. Airbnb brought him in and his boss was a 20-year-old lady and she knew all about tech. She had actually not studied tech, but she had this uh, experience, a bit of experience in the job. And there was a partnership where actually he provided that technical knowledge and capability as a wisdom worker, he called it. And she was the one who then implemented those ideas in the context of this tech and in the Airbnb app. And I thought that was so fascinating because often you think oh to be a leader you've got to have you've got to be um, of a certain age um, have a certain amount of wrinkles and gray hair we mentioned that last week Brett and I think that you I think that you don't but it can be 
a tricky thing to navigate because I think people also have the belief, I've done my time, I've proven myself. And it can also happen a lot, I think, for women in male-dominated fields because they go, well, it was hard for me, then why should should it be easy for you? So I feel, I just, I feel very strongly <laughs> that you don't. And I think tangibly the world that we're working in now has changed from what it was where it might be, I'm building a road from A to B. I need to know the geotech information. I need to know how to design it. And it's simple. Now we have to deal with, not deal with, now it's it's awesome that this is included, communities. How is this going to make an impact on the land and the environment? I think that's a huge part of what we're doing around sustainability and rightly so. These things must be included in our projects. So it makes them even more complex and we've got to be able to think in a systems view, not just one technical area that we had to in the past. So I think we need to look at this from that perspective that it's a a systems approach and we're working in different environments, which means we need that that people focus and that systems focus. I'll stop ranting now and I'm really keen to hear your perspective on this. Do you agree or do you disagree? I agree. I am sold. I mean, look, I am. Sarah, great question. Um, I'm absolutely a big believer that you don't need to be technical to be a leader. I, I, I really cannot state that more directly. Um, if I look at my career, um, I'm, I'm responsible at the moment with three boards and, and a fantastic leadership team um, for a very large um, program of work, right? But I didn't know what portable long service leave was before I got here. Um, you know, I so I think the answer is what type of leader do you want to be? Do you want to be a leader that sets the direction, sets the strategy and then goes away in and drives that because getting back to our conversation last week about what is leadership felicity leaders are about setting the direction where do we want to end up getting ready to plant the flag on the hill on the hill and managers are the ones that get you there that navigate the potholes etc 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 so sarah getting back to your question I, I i reckon the answer is a fundamental no you don't need to be technical to be a leader what you need to make sure that you do is in the team, and that's the whole reason why we're talking about team today, the whole reason that a leader exists is to make sure that they've got the right components of the team to make sure that all the decisions that you were talking about, Felicity, the systems piece, the external factors, et cetera, that all of those people with the right technical experience are there to provide you as the leader with advice. I, I, I believe that in my gut. You don't need to be technical to be a great leader. I hope that's answered the question. Mm-hmm. That does. Thank you, Brett. Thanks, Felicity. Pleasure. And just to add to that, Brett, too, it's important to find those leaders that are going to sponsor and support you in those roles. Because the person who commented on link my LinkedIn post around this, I actually he was one of my project leaders. And so he was never going to sponsor me, promote me, put me forward for leadership opportunities beyond where I was because he had a different belief. And I guess that comes back to what are your values and what are the values of the leaders around you and aligning yourself with people who are on the same page where I also had someone in the organisation who uh, was more senior, the CEO, and he, while he was a structural engineer by training and he did his time and he had a traditional career path and was... uh, he quote he said this himself pale stale male 
he could see the opportunity of new leadership and what was needed to make the organization successful. So he very happily sponsored me, introduced me to his networks and put me forward for opportunities. And there was such a contrast between those two leaders and I aligned myself more and invested more time in the relationship with that person who was going to sponsor me and put me forward. It was a waste of time, even though I desperately wanted to convince the other guy that he was wrong. But I did it. Not not worth it. Not worth investing the time. So building those relationships can be powerful because I think often you go, okay, that's great as a theory and that's great that me and Brett agree that we, you know, you should be promoted or put forward as a leader without that technical experience. But in reality, there's still a lot of people in the industry or in in particularly engineering that I think have that traditional mindset. And at the end of the day, I think they're going to be left behind and they're not actually, they're going to be more successful if you're open-minded to having those different ideas and those innovative approaches coming through. If you want to, if you want to have some fun with a leadership team, um, tell them that you're going to rotate them through every division, every 12 months. That's when you'll see who the technical people are versus the true leaders, because the technical people will say, "Well, no, I, you can't do this job because you don't have this qualification or something else." Try that. That's a lot of fun. That's really, awesome. And- you'll really see who is technical versus a people leader. And it's actually what we do in our Elevate days where we have a day simulation. You get to be the CEO of a company and we deliberately make it a company that's focused in the future that no one would really know exactly technically how to make it work. And then you're, I guess, forced in a way to make decisions on the day And you don't have that technical capability to rely on. And I think often people who have relied on that technical capability to get them so far in their career, then it can fall over when they are put in those difficult and uncomfortable situations because that's kind of what they're drawn to and their, you know, key strategy. And it it can work in that department, but when you get moved around or when you're working on something that's unfamiliar, it throws a lot of those decision-making processes out because you've got to think in a different way and you get to see those skills as well. So I love that, Brett. That's awesome. And, and I think the one thing I'll, finally, I'll say finally before I throw it back to you, Felicity, is um, the higher you go up in leadership and the higher the team is that you are operating with, the less you're actually working on the detail. You know, a lot of leadership at very senior levels is about problem solving. It's about stakeholder management. It's about crisis management, as opposed to actually dealing with really technical related matters. So I think, you know, that's another example where where I think, you know, the higher you go, the less technical you need to be. What a relief, Brett. That's great. I might actually make it to a leadership position by the end of my career. Perfect. (laughs) Well, we are out of time today. The TED Talk I was trying to remember is by Chip Conley. So Google him, TED Talk, if you want to learn more about the partnership between wisdom workers and emerging leaders. It's fantastic and got some great tips in there as well. Thanks so much, Brett. Thanks, everyone, for your questions. We've loved having you here for the podcast today with our live Q&A. We're going to be doing this every week. We're going to have special guests, experts coming in. Brett and I are going to quiz them, and you get to quiz them too. So we'd love to have you along again for one of our podcast live sessions and if you want to re-listen we'll be putting this out onto spotify and apple uh, itunes as well 
Thanks so much, Brett. Awesome as always to chat. I hope you've enjoyed the discussion. Thank you. Thanks, thanks heaps for listening. Thanks, everybody, for turning up and for the questions that were asked.